Thank you. Hi. Hi, my name's Linda, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi. Um, good evening, and um, thank you for inviting me to come and hang out with you. I really know that these things don't just happen. I, it looks like the committee's had a really good time. My observation is when the committee has a good time, then the convention has a good time. And it looks like we're already having a good time with the skit, with that gorgeous quilt. Um, and, you know, uh, Martha actually told me that the reason they were having it is because today is her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, happy birthday, lady. And I'm, I'll be yours, too, and Carol White's is, too. Really? Hey, I'm grateful you all chose to come to my birthday party. Thank you. That's right. That's right. So, thanks for inviting us. In fact, um, I love to come to Kentucky to the convention. I don't know if any of you were here. I, I don't even know what year it was. You might remember, but do you remember the year that Elvis came? Do y'all remember that year? Was anybody here that year that we did the sock hop? Thank you. I thought I thought that wasn't a fantasy that I, Elvis did come Saturday night to the 2001 A Space Odyssey. It was great. So what I believe about Kentucky and Kentucky's recovery is that you believe in having a good time. And, you know, if we weren't having a happy time, why would we want to be in recovery? You know, in that little pamphlet, uh, Living with Sobriety, there's a quote in there that says, uh, being happy takes some getting used to. Isn't that true? I was really afraid that once my life started calming down and some of the drama went away that you might kick me out. But, you know, so far you haven't, and I'm having a great life. So I want to share some of that with you. But one of the things that Al-Anon has taught me, and that's to ask for what I need, Okay. Um, I, I, I really like coming to convention. I was having a really good time until uh, a few minutes ago when they asked me to come up here. I guess I thought I was going to get away with it and get to stay out there on that side of the podium. So you've taught me to ask for what I need. And um, what I need is another moment of silence. Because like our incredible Alateen speaker, Jesse, what courage that took. I'm just so proud to be up here sitting beside you. And what I know, it's just our turn to tell our story. And, but it, it gets a little anxious on this side, right? Right. So um, one time somebody asked Lois Wilson, who's the co-founder of Al-Anon, what she did in the moment of silence. And she said, I invite God to the meeting. You know, the moment of silence before the serenity prayer. So if you'd be willing to indulge me in another moment of silence, and if you'd also be willing to uh, ask the God of your understanding to come. Now, when you hear my wonderful now and forever husband, uh, Scott, speak, he also says in the moment of silence, he asked God for, uh, for him not to judge the speaker. If y'all want to do that, that's okay, too. <laughs> but just a moment of silence so, so I can remember that I can breathe and, and, uh, and just do another prayer. I feel like I'm prayed up, but I really need this moment of silence to kind of get settled in, okay? Moment of silence, please. Thank you. I love being at an Al-Anon convention. I cannot tell you how honored I am to be up here and to share my story. 
And I can actually share my story in one sentence, and it comes from a sentence with, from one of our trusted servants, our feisty little trusted servants, um, servant, uh, Sarah Jane from Georgia. I don't know if any of y'all know her or not, but when she speaks, she introduces herself like this. She says, hi, my name is Sarah Jane, and I'm from Georgia, and I'm a member of Al-Anon, and I'm addicted to mood-altering men. <laughs> You know, I've had to go to Al-Anon forever to learn that. And she taught me that several years ago. And, you know, it, um, the, the disease in my head isn't too creative. I, I'm still very much addicted to mood-altering men, mood-altering people, before recovery and, and after recovery. In fact, a true story is I am so good at being able to pick out an alcoholic in a crowd, and my husband thinks this is a gift. My husband is, uh, my husband is wonderful. He's 23 years sober, okay? But he says, I am so good at picking out these alcoholics, and he wants recovery to be boosted in Nashville, Tennessee. So for my birthday several years ago, he gave me some business cards, 500 business cards. And he said, what you can do with these business cards, he said, you know, if you're at the dry cleaners or uh, you're at the grocery store and you look over there and you see somebody you're attracted to, you can just hand them one of these cards. He said, I think it would really help our community. And I said, okay. Now, here's the card. The front of it has um, a couple of butterflies, very appropriate, my name, phone number, that sort of thing. But look, the back of it says this, hi, my name is Linda. I am a member of Al-Anon. I find you attractive. So I suggest you go to the nearest treatment center and have an assessment done. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he says, you know, he says, just think how much time that would save, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm glad you see the humor in that. It's because we identify with that. And thanks to Al-Anon, I don't have to apologize for that attraction. And I can tell you that the, probably the first person that I could maybe hand this business card to, oh, the first person would probably be my dad. You know, I've known my dad all my life. And uh, just so you don't have to do any math, I've known my dad for almost 62 years, Okay. And I've seen my dad drink almost every day of my life. In fact, I've seen my dad drink a lot. I've seen my dad drunk a lot of days of my life. And he's absolutely one of the most incredible men you'd ever want to meet. If my dad came through this door, the dogs and the children would fall in love with him immediately. All of the Al-Anons in the room would want to take him home as a pet. I mean, he is a charming man. And... I grew up as an, I'm an only child, I grew up in West Texas. You can see my lifestyle uh, on TV under the Friday Night Lights. I'm from Odessa, Texas. And you know, that's, that's, the, that's the lifestyle I grew up with. And I have to tell you that I never heard my mother and dad argue about anything except my dad's drinking. Now what my mother taught me, uh, and my parents have been married for, uh, they're coming up on uh, about 65 years of marriage, okay? They've been doing this dance a long time. And my mother was one of the women that taught me to get the Venetian blind marks in my forehead. You know, go to the window, look out, and wait. When's dinner going to be ready, Mama? When your dad comes home. Can I go to the prom? Ask your dad, you know, because she was always busy waiting for him to come home. 
And the thing about this lifestyle, when I grew up in, in West Texas, I graduated from high school in 1964, and, and we had sidewalks. We, I played, it's the wide open spaces out there in Odessa, and I had a great childhood. My parents to this day love me greatly. But it was like they were always trying to give me stuff to show how much they love me, and they couldn't really give me the, the stuff that I needed. Maybe it was the touchy-feely stuff. I don't know. I didn't know that my dad's drinking was causing any blocks in my way of life or in my growing up or in my having close contact with my parents. I couldn't have said that was causing any more trouble than eating macaroni and cheese. I would never have said, we have got to stop eating macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese is killing this family because it was so much an everyday, common way of life. It just seems like part of our, our lifestyle. And, um, and my dad, thanks to Al-Anon, is still, drink, still drinking. And thanks to Al-Anon, I can just back off and we can have a great relationship. The thing is, um, I think during that time that... I think I started working on what I call step zero, that big, empty hollowness that's in your gut. And I think I started working on it in that household growing up. And I didn't know that what was going on in that household until I got into Al-Anon and I got my hands on some of the Alateen literature. That's why I love hearing the stories about from the Alateens. I don't care what program you're in. You get that little 20-question pop quiz is Alateen for you? I think it's red. And uh, start asking yourself, as an adult, take that quiz, and I think you're going to find out that we're not the first flowers to bloom in the garden. Okay? Things like, uh, are holidays frequently interrupted? Do you have problem with authority figures? Do you try to stay out of the house as much as possible? Man, when, as an adult, I read that, and I go, bingo. Bingo, bingo, because that's what was going on with me when that emptiness was going on, the step zero. And I think that when I was in school, I would be going, I wonder what's going on at home. I better get home and try to take care of it. Then I'd get home, and I'd go, how can I get out of here? Now, these weren't conscious thoughts, okay? It's just what the beginning of that hollow growth of the disease started telling me. I had a great childhood. My parents gave me everything. The budget for shoes and clothes didn't have to be divided with a lot of brothers and sisters. I was an only child. We go on a holiday. I got all of the back seat. Nobody looked out my window, you know, because I had two windows. And so I can tell you that this was a loving family that I grew up in. My dad still calls me pumpkin, even if we're in a business setting. I'm telling you, there was love. There was love in this household, and I tell you, there was also the growing process of the disease of alcoholism, and I'm telling you that both of those things can live in the same house, but that doesn't mean we're not affected. I was affected by the love that my parents gave me. I was affected by the disease of alcoholism. I graduate from high school, and I uh, decide to stay at, and go to school at a junior college, and, and I think that I started wanting to get out of this household. But back then, I don't think I knew how to get out of this household. Things were a lot different back then. You have to think about it. In 1964, so I'm at this junior college, still living at home, and I look over 
and he is walking across the college campus. Get out the card and dust it off and hand it to him, you know? I mean, my little heart went thumpity-thump, and something in this young boy must have gone thumpity-thump because in two weeks he asked me to marry him. And I thought that was a good idea. I didn't even know this young man, but I thought this was a great idea. So we went in front of my parents, and uh, we announced that we were going to get married. And they started asking really bothersome questions like, shouldn't he have a job first? And, you know, we go, that's just details. We'll work it out. You know, it was a time that I think that that was a way for me to get out of the household. It was also a time that... Uh, and you can work this out however you want to, that I had honestly been a good girl for about as long as I could be, okay? So with a six-month engagement, we walk down the aisle. I have the white dress on. He's got the good-looking tux on. Man, it was a storybook little wedding, and we lived happily ever after for the first week. Mm -hmm. And then to celebrate our being married for one week, my then-husband brought home two of his best friends. We're still students in college, and I think Cliff must have been in his English class or something, and their other friend, Bud, their Bud, came in the cooler in between these two guys. And they brought in this other friend, Bud, to celebrate our being married for one week. And... I saw my husband's friend drink a lot of beer and kind of pass out on our couch. And, you know, we're in student, a married student housing, which was uh, about half of this podium. You all probably remember it, you know. So the friend kind of passes out on the couch, and uh, my husband kind of drinks a lot and goes to sleep or kind of passes out on our bed. And, and, and I'm standing in the middle of this small apartment looking at both of them. They look like a bunch of fallen trees. And I, I took that pre-Al-Anon stance. You might recognize it. <laughs> you know, I had the conscious thought, I am not going to let him get away with that. You know, I had a conscious thought. He is not going to get drunk and miss our one-week anniversary. And I was one of those Al-Anons, pre-Al-Anons. I always had a plan. I always had a script. I always had little control issues. And I thought, if he's going to act that way, I'm going to have to show him that he can't act that way and get away with it. So that night, my plan was, I slept in the bathtub. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, that was the most logical thing that night. You know? I mean, just see this woman, this one-week married woman, get her pillow, get her blankie, and go climb in the bathtub. And it was so logical at the time. And, you know, the next morning, my husband has a horrible hangover, and I have a horrible backache. And, uh, and that's the dance we did for 16 years and two lovely children. You're going to do that. I'm not going to let you get away with it. I'm going to be over here, and I'm going to do something to try to fix it. Now, in the 16 years of marriage, uh, we moved around a lot. In 16 years, we had at least 13 physical moves when we actually picked up the household and moved it to another location. 
And you know what that means is that you have to have money for the phone, the electric, the water. You never get to make any friends. You don't get any community as far as any social clubs or churches are concerned because you're moving on down the road again. And when this young man would stand in front of me and he would say, I think it would be better if uh, we live in Dallas, I would believe him because, see, he believed it. He didn't know that he was doing a geographic cure. That's a word that I learned after I got into Al-Anon. He thought he was moving toward a dream. He, doesn't know, he didn't know he was trying to outrun the disease. I believed him because he believed it. He wasn't trying to set me up. He really was trying to do a better way of life. So we would pick up the stuff, the books, the baby toys, the dishes, and the disease, the progressive disease of alcoholism. And I thought 13, year, 13 moves in 16 years, I thought that was a lot. But I think if you look at our history books, Lois and Bill Wilson had 52 different mailing addresses. We desperately try to outrun this disease, desperately try to outrun it. Now, this young man that didn't have a job when we got married, uh, he kind of had trouble finding himself, okay? Uh, We were always students, and we'd been married about two years when our first daughter was born, and he really didn't have a job. And then one day, he accidentally got a job. And what happened was he was uh, having uh, a beer at his favorite saloon, which was a Holiday Inn, very much like this. And this is when every Holiday Inn, every Ramada, every Sheridan in Texas had a private club because they could only serve liquor by the drink. And he was down there having his little drink. And the barkeep said, uh, I've been thinking about maybe getting a band and maybe putting them over there in the corner and then for happy hour, and then maybe people would stay longer here and they'd drink longer. And so he runs home, he gets his guitar, he goes back, he sings a couple of songs. Friday night, he has a job, and he's making more money than we'd seen, like, in months. And now he not only has a job, he has a career. This young man dropped out of school. He started traveling to Holiday Inn, and he'd be at one Holiday Inn for 30 days, and then this next innkeeper would say, boy, he did such a good job there. Why don't you come to Houston? Why don't you come to El Paso? Why don't you come to Dallas? Why don't you come to Nacogdoches? Why don't... And so all of a sudden, he's moving every 30 days, and he's living in Holiday Inns. And I didn't think he should go off without adult supervision. Mm-hmm. And I thought I needed to be the adult supervision. So I dropped out of school, very close to graduation. I never had the thought, maybe I could stay here and finish my college degree with honors. I was like a semester away. But I thought I needed to be there with him. I thought that meant love. But what that actually meant was keep an eye on him. So I packed up our baby, and we start traveling together. We have no address at this point in time. And we're living in Holiday Inns and Ramadas. He's going down to work every night. I'm staying upstairs with this young baby. He's coming home from work. Now, he would kind of look like and act like and uh, smell like he'd been to a party. But since it was work, it must be okay. But I'm watching this night after night. My husband go to work, and he'd come home at 2 or 3 in the morning, and kind of like he'd been to a party, and... And we go to another town, and I don't know anybody, and I'm getting pretty bored. And you can't tell me that we pre-Alanarns aren't creative people. I thought I needed to be there with him. So I came up with a great plan. 
This was a great plan. He came in one Friday night, and I said, hey, I'm going to be the drummer in the band. He said, have you ever played drums before? I said, that's just details. We'll work it out, you know, because I was a determined woman that I needed to be there to be with him. So the bass player took me to a pawn shop on Saturday afternoon, and for 50 bucks, I promise, I bought a whole trap set of drums. I'm talking about a bass drum, two ride toms, a floor tom, a snare drum, a hi-hat, a crash cymbal. Monday night, I was the drummer in the band, okay? <laughs> um, things were a lot different then, and uh, I, ha- I, um, I played the drums for, for almost a decade in his band. And now we're traveling all over Texas, and it's always in the telling. I mean, this looked like a perfect deal. We'd come into a town, and there our name would be up on the marquee at the Holiday Inn. Coming, you know, September 14th. There we'd come. And, you know, I still had this little baby who's growing up, and I'd have to get a babysitter, or better still, I'd just have the innkeeper get a babysitter. And it would be one of the waitress's younger sisters. It would be a girl from the high school. There would be babysitters. I couldn't even told you who her, what her name was. But, see, it was important that I was down there making music with my husband. And we became known as the party band. Wherever we were, whether or not we were in Houston or Texas or Dallas or San Angelo or San Antonio, it didn't matter where we were, whoever was traveling in concert, whoever was making music in that community, they found out where we were playing because we were the band that would, after the law said we could no longer serve alcohol, we were the band that would talk the innkeeper in to lock in the doors and we would have a party all night long. And I have to tell you, many, many a night I have made music with some names that you would recognize, and I thought it was great, and I thought it was wonderful. Oh, what about that baby up there in that room? What about that teenager that had to go to school the next morning? She couldn't stay and babysit that long. So when she'd have to go home, what I would do is I would go upstairs I would take the telephone off the hook, and I'd put it by her pillow. I'd go downstairs in the bar, and I'd take that phone off the hook. And every now and then, I would take a break, and I'd go over and listen to see if she was okay. Now, I tell you that because it absolutely terrifies me now. That is parent neglect. That is abuse. But see, I thought I had to be there with the party to keep an eye on him. Now... We moved around and made music all over Texas, and and finally my husband says, let's move to Nashville, Tennessee. And the music and this determined man is what got me to Nashville. And my thing about that was, um, how do you feel like you're going home to a place you've never lived? But I think I thought it must be the end of the moves. You know, at least now we can really put down some roots. And I, um, our eight, there's eight years between our daughters. Once we got to Nashville, I retired from playing the drums because now I wanted to have a normal life, okay? And things didn't happen as, as quickly for that husband as he had hoped. Um, he got disillusioned about the industry because the music business in Nashville, Tennessee, is serious business. And the progression of the disease of alcohol sometimes makes the party more important than taking care of business. And he came in and announced one day, get packed, we're going back to Texas. And I have to tell you, at that point in time, I was so very old, I couldn't. I could not physically pack another cardboard box. And I said, I can't. 
I can't go. And he used the trump card that he'd used on me several times. He said, well, I guess we just get a divorce. Because before he had used that card, and I'd absolutely been petrified. I'd been petrified of being left alone. I'd been petrified of being abandoned. I, you know, I was just petrified. But something in me this time said, okay, because I couldn't pack one more time. And our neighbor was an attorney, and for 50 bucks, he got us a divorce. And my husband, my now former husband, packed all of his music instruments into his car, and he took off for Texas. And I wish him the very best, because he is the natural father of my girls. And the happier he is, the happier their relationship has a chance on being. And uh, he's, he married a young woman, and they're raising another family, and I wish, I promise, I keep him in my prayers every single day. I wish him much happiness. But meanwhile, it's my story. And here's what it looked like, and here's rearview mirror. Here is the young daughter who was three years old, barely three. Here is the 11-year-old daughter, and here is their mother whose resume said, drummer in the band. And, um, and he had to kind of clean out our checking account to kind of help him move. Of course, that was information he didn't actually share with me until after he was gone. So that was the state that I was left in. And um, the attorney that handled the divorce said, you're going to need a better job. I guess he wanted his $50, you know. (laughs) And um, he said, there's a guy that has a commercial real estate office on the 25th floor of the bank center downtown. He said he's looking for someone to manage his office. And he manages shopping centers. I did not know how well my control skills could be used as management skills, okay? I go down there. I sometimes have a slip of words. I say, I go down there and auditioned for this job because audition is all I'd ever done as far as the music was concerned. But I interviewed for this job, and I got it. And now I've got a real job. I am managing an office I am managing shops, shopping centers. I managed to get my real estate license. I managed to get my broker's license. I managed so well that I knew I could keep my girls living happily ever after because I was managing to put a lot of money in the bank. And I have to tell you, during this time of my life, I turned my back on my two girls the same way anybody would with a drug or a drink. The message that I would give my daughters would be like I'd call them, Five o'clock. Oh, mom can't come home tonight. Uh, Just stick something in the microwave because I've got some very, very important people in from out of town. Which would tell them, you're not so important. I'd get up in the morning, hurry up, get to school. I've got to get you to school. I've got to go to this networking breakfast. And that was the message that I was giving them over and over again. But see, I believe we were going to live happily ever after because I was putting so much money in the bank. And I was giving them stuff, just like I'd been taught. I was giving them lots of stuff. So Christmas comes up, and I'd given them lots of stuff. And we get the pictures back, and there's lots of stuff in those pictures. And there's lots of wrapping or paper that was wrapped around all that stuff in those pictures. But I'm looking at this picture, and I'm thinking, wow, we don't look happy. The little girl doesn't look happy, and the older girl doesn't look happy and the mom doesn't look happy hmm what's missing from this picture a man 
that's why we're not happy. And, you know, now I'm in my mid-30s, and I didn't think I had a lot of time, so I married my boss. Now, (laughs) he'd been asking me out, but he'd been married at the time, and he kept saying, that's just details. We'll work it out, okay? (laughs) So here's the Cinderella story. Here's a man that marries his secretary who's gone good and making her own way in owning her own company and making a lot of money. He marries her. He adopts her two daughters. And now we are going to live happily ever after. You know, I've got it all. It is a Cinderella story. He moves us into a mansion. It was a mansion because it had six bathrooms. Believe me, that's a mansion. And we're in all of the right clubs, like um, the 100-year-old cognac club. That was important to get into that one. Uh, We had a wine cellar. See, wine cellar wasn't like drinking, you know. We had a wine cellar that would rival a small restaurant, and we knew about wines. We knew about wines, dessert wines, before-dinner wines, after-dinner wines, before-bedtime wines. We knew about wines. We studied wines. We traveled and studied wines. Anyway, I digress. Um, Here is the living happily ever after. We are traveling all over. My daughters have uh, private schools that they go to. They've got fancy clothes to wear. We're putting together shopping centers, and everything looks like we're living happily ever after. But some strange things started happening in that house pretty fast some strange things that I couldn't understand and I'd go to my girlfriends and I'd say I think something really bad's going on here but I just can't put my finger on it and they would look at my lifestyle and they'd go what do you have to complain about so I'd go away I would go to my doctor and I'd say I really think I'm going crazy Something really strange is going on in my household, and I just can't get my fingers around it. I don't know what's going on. And he would look at the lifestyle in my address, and he'd go, what do you have to complain about? And I'd go away. And I'd do that over with parents. I'd do it with friends. I'd do it with people that I'd met. And I have to tell you that I kept my daughters in this situation for eight years because it was so attractive of a package. Now, what was going on in that household, what I can tell you now, because this man, by his own admission, has said it, not only was he or is an alcoholic, he's also a cocaine addict. And during that time, he was also a cocaine entrepreneur. When you have a nice address, that's what you call drug dealer, okay? And that's what was going on in that household that was so scary and so strange, I mean, unbelievable things were going on. And we would have a horrible fight. And I didn't think that we should get a second divorce. This is before I knew about the the cocaine addiction. This is before I knew about the alcoholism. This is before I knew about anything going wrong in that household. We would go to this loving doctor that I'd picked out of the phone book under marriage counseling. And we'd go into this doctor, and I would tell my sad story, and this doctor would tell me I was too sensitive, and he'd tell my husband, you're not sensitive enough. And so we'd go away till we'd have another fight. And finally, we had had enough of these fights, and we'd been in front of this doctor enough time that he would be so bored that he would pick up a paper clip, and he would undo it, and it looked like a little helicopter. And he'd kind of play with it, and then he'd say, oh, you're out of time. And he'd shoo us away. And we'd go away until we had another fight. So this is the pattern that had been going on. And one day we had a horrible fight. 
I'm talking a fight down in the lower Florida Keys, and um, I, I walked out of a restaurant with my husband there and another couple, and I went on, on a scary run, and I ended up in the Miami airport spending the night in a part of the airport trying to get away from that situation with my husband that was open to the outside world, and it was a scary place. And I probably said, a prayer. God, my life is unmanageable. Now, it didn't seem unmanageable because we had this fancy house and these fancy clothes and these fancy cars and these fancy boats, and we were down here on this fancy holiday with these other fancy people. But that night at the airport, in the Miami airport, I lived like a bag lady just trying to stay safe because that part of the airport where the, they had let me out was, was open to, to everybody that came in. And I thought, this isn't right. I got a lot of money in the bank. I do big real estate deals. I don't, my, this is unmanageable. I've got to do something about that. So when we get back to Nashville, my husband is really angry now because uh, he said, no woman has ever walked out on me before. And he is really angry. And because I was always so organized and I knew we are going to have a fight, I tried to stall a little bit, and I said, why don't we go see the doctor? You know, the one that twirls the paper clip? I'm just trying to buy a little time here. Now, the, And he says, okay, because we'd always have a horrible fight, and then we'd go see this doctor. And I'm thinking, a fight's about to happen. Let's try to go see this doctor. And this doctor, you'd have to call him and maybe get an appointment like six weeks on down the road. And, and, I, and he said, okay, and I, and I dodged around, and the phone number was right there, and I called the doctor, and the lady said, we just had a cancellation. If you can be here in 15 minutes, the doctor can see you. I had said a prayer, my life is unmanageable. God immediately stepped in. And so now we're in a car going to see this doctor, and it was the silent anger in that car. We know about anger. I knew about anger. I know what anger sounds like. It sounds like a lamp up against the wall. It sounds like a plate hitting the floor. It sounds like skin hitting skin. I knew about the noises of anger. I'd experienced them. But the silent anger in that car going to see that doctor was absolutely deadly. I was absolutely petrified because I didn't know what was going to happen. And he is white-knuckling it all the way. And we'd had, some, we'd had some episodes that had to do with guns. I'm telling you, I knew fear, but I'd never known fear like I knew it that day driving to that doctor's office. This time we go into the doctor's office, and he says, before you start talking, I have to tell you, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And I need to make amends to my patients because I haven't always been as present as I should have been. He knew he'd been twirling that little paper clip, okay, that he hasn't been as present as he should have been. And, of course, he picked up on what was going on in our household because his household had been living it. And he said, look, to make amends to you, and things were different then, he said, my wife and I were going to go on this week-long couples retreat to this treatment center. Here's the registration. Here are the tickets. Now, you get up and, and go up and do that. And, again, God's grace was working in our life. It was over spring break. My daughters were going to go spend that week with their natural father back in Texas. 
He had the tickets there. So my husband and I, like about three days later, got on an airplane, and we're flying out to South Dakota to go to this week-long couples retreat. I'm excited. I'm thinking this is a life-changing thing. My husband's excited, too, because he thought an airplane was one of his favorite places to drink. So we show up at this treatment center in that kind of condition, okay? And we walk into this room, and there are those unbelievable banners of the steps and the tradition. And just to kind of pass time, I walk over to them, and, and there's that word unmanageable. And I thought, isn't that funny? That, I, that showed up in my vocabulary thinking. And, you know, that doesn't show up. I managed. I managed shopping centers. I managed two companies. I managed our household. I managed to have dinner parties for 16 people. I managed to have 112 cupcakes at school at 8 o'clock in the morning when you call me at 10 o'clock at night. I managed, okay? And now here's this word, unmanageable, again, showing up, and I'm thinking, isn't this something? So here we are at this treatment center, to work on our relationship, and this is what it looked like. It was beautiful in South Dakota. There was a little lake, and there was a little lodge, and people, uh, couples would walk around the lodge holding hands, walk around the lake. They'd come in for dinner holding hands. They were just in twoses everywhere, and I looked up one day, and I'm thinking, this looks like Noah's Ark, (laughs) the way everybody's walking around, and When it was our turn to work on our marriage, they would take my husband into the other room. And I'm going, how can we work on our marriage if they have him in the other room? And what I know, honestly, today, that AA and Al-Anon is not about saving relationships. It's about saving lives. Alcoholism is a disease so powerful, it kills people that don't even have it. That's a powerful disease. And they had this man in the other room kind of break at his wall of denial on his use of drugs and alcohol and some other hobbies that wouldn't really enhance a marriage, okay? And I'm out there in the middle of the floor going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do this week. Well, I learned the serenity prayer. That was good. I'd never been exposed to that before. But then a life-changing event God's grace stepped in again, and as we were leaving that facility, the director of the facility gave me a big bear hug, and he whispered in my ear, get yourself to Al-Anon. Now, we're in the dark hills of South Dakota, the Black Hills, and I decided Al-Anon must be an Indian word. (laughs) You know, I didn't have a clue as to what it was. But we get back to Nashville, Tennessee, and now... We no longer have that handy tool of denial. Remember how handy denial was? You didn't have to do anything. You could just deny it. wasn't even over there. That elephant didn't look big. That elephant wasn't taking up any room. And that elephant didn't even smell bad because that elephant wasn't even there. Okay? And that's the way we'd been living in denial. But now we couldn't live in denial. We didn't have that tool. And, um, and things got really bad. You think they might get good, but no, they got really bad. You might remember those early days of recovery. They got really bad. And weekends were long at my house. I could hide out at work during the week, but weekends were long. And we'd had a very long weekend, and I was at my very organized desk Monday morning, 
and I was getting ready to keep my two secretaries busy full time. I'm getting ready to do some big million dollar deals. I'm getting ready to be a shaker and a mover, an achiever, a manager, a perfect woman to get this thing done in the business world. And I'm falling apart. I'm crying. I didn't cry. I'm a businesswoman. I don't cry. And I remembered what the man told me, and I remembered the word Al-Anon, and I'm so grateful I looked it up in the phone book, and there it was. And I'm so grateful for anybody that does service work at intergroup office or central office because you are changing and saving lives. Now, I call this woman, and how can I ask her any questions? Because I don't even know what's going on. I don't even know what Al-Anon's about. And she put it together by asking me some questions. Where are you? And uh, she said, this is amazing. She said, it's Monday, and there's a new group that just started, and it's starting at 12 noon. And that's only a couple hours away, and it's only two blocks from your office. She says, you go on over there, and they'll talk to you about Al-Anon. They'll give you some literature. She says, you go over there. So by this time, I'm kind of calmed down, and I didn't have any power lunches that day. So I thought, well, I guess I'll just go on over there. They probably just want me to write them a check and donate some money or something. So I'll just go on over there to this Al-Anon thing, whatever that is. And so I walked into the United Methodist Publishing House to my very first Al-Anon meeting. And 20 years later, that's still the meeting I'm going to. I absolutely loved it. I took to Al-Anon like I hadn't had oxygen all my life. That's how fast I took to it. But I want to tell you who the woman was that had her hand on the doorknob to go into first Al-Anon meeting. Um, it was who I was was actually represented in our little skip today. You know, I would be the one holding the card D, all of the above. Okay? <laughs> That's who I was going into my first Al-Anon meeting. I looked like I was very organized, and I was ab absolutely scared to death. You know, when I was a little girl, I was so grown up. And then when I was a grown up, I was so frightful like a little girl inside. I am managing offices. I'm managing our household. I'm the one in charge, and I'm absolutely petrified. My husband is bottoming out on his disease of drugs and alcohol. My teenage daughter in high school is beginning her journey into drugs and alcohol. My eight-year-old daughter is in what they call precocious puberty, which means her eight-year-old body had turned into that of a teenager at, at eight years old. Uh, the mom, the one that's in charge, had no spiritual connect, so controlling, and I was in premenopause. You think our house wasn't a war zone? <laughs> it was a war zone. We had separate bedrooms. We had separate TVs. We did not have eye contact in the hallway because it wasn't safe. And yet this is the time that it looks like we are living a Hollywood dream. You know, we've got this unbelievable life with this big house and all of this stuff. And we were absolutely falling apart. And I look back on those days, and I can tell you there was something that I was trying to do on a daily basis. What I was trying to do is I was trying to please the disease. And you can't please it. It's so greedy, it wants more. It wants the dreams. It wants the kids. It wants the husbands. It wants everything. This disease is so powerful. So I opened up 
the door to go into that Al-Anon meeting, and I swear one of the first things I said was, what's that noise? And you said, honey, that's laughter. Come on in, okay? Because it had been a long time since I'd heard that, that wonderful belly-gut laughter that we share in these meetings. Unbelievable how I felt when I sat in that first meeting. I, I cried. I cried some more. And I did what I see newcomers do today. Uh, I did what I call I would sing the hymns. Do you have singing in your al meeting? You know the ones. Him did this and him did that. I would sing those hymns at every meeting, you know. But what you did is, is you let me stay. And you said, we suggest you go to a lot of meetings. That was easy because that's the only time I felt safe and I felt happy. I went to lots of meetings. You suggested that I get a sponsor. That was hard because I didn't think I, my self-esteem was so low. I didn't think I was worthy of any, another woman's time and energy. But you told me to get a sponsor, and I picked a sponsor that had a 10-year marriage in recovery. I was still trying to hang on to the dream of that second marriage. It didn't matter why I picked her. The matter was that I picked a sponsor, and she was a good sponsor for me because she told me the truth. And it had been a long time since I'd been told the truth. That marriage didn't last, even in a couple years of recovery. I think it was um, not wrong for me to want some things from a marriage relationship, but maybe it was wrong for me to demand them from a man that wasn't in a place to be able to give them. So um, we got a divorce. It was almost like a business divorce. It took a long, long time to get this business divorce. And the reason my sponsor was so good for me because she handled me through this divorce by telling me the truth. And one of my awakenings was one time I'd come home from a very big business deal. The house was dark. The kids, one girl was in college. One girl was at the babysitter. The dog was at the kennels. The, the, the husband was there, not there, because we were going through the divorce. The house was so dark, so lonely. I was so desperate oh, I'll call my sponsor. She'll give me a warm fuzzy. I'll call her. I called her up, and I said, I just feel like I've been so rejected. And she said, you have been. I mean, it was amazing when that woman told me the truth that I could, I could react to the truth. And from that point on, I worked at finding out what my truths were. Because I got it. If I could speak my truth, then you'd have a chance to react in a truthful manner back to me. And that's my journey by learning my truth of who I am by going through the steps. Now, who I was before I came to you, what hat did you want me to wear? You want me to be the PTA prez? You want me to be the Girl Scout leader? You want me to be the president of the company? You want me to be the perfect neighbor? You want me to be the perfect wife, perfect mom, perfect daughter? What, whatever you wanted me to be. I had a disease of pronouns. How are you today? We're fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have to really watch my pronouns. I did not have the pronoun I and me in my vocabulary. Um, it was really hard for me to take the first step because I was given a lot of power. So how could I believe I was powerless? I was given power in the form of blame. Um, I picked the restaurant. We got bad service and bad food. Somehow that was my fault. The car had a flat tire. Somehow that was my fault. 
So if I got the blame for those things, I also took it on that I must have the right to make this man happy. So that's why it was so hard for me to take step one, because I thought I had a lot of power. I made him miserable. I must be responsible for making him happy. And again, all I was trying to do was please the disease. So I came into the doors of Al-Anon without knowing who I am. And what I can say is by going through these steps, I found out who I am. And it's like all of me showed up finally at the same time. Al-Anon has given me a recovery of my spiritual self, my emotional self, my physical self. Finally, all of my ages are the same. And that feels pretty good. That's who I am, and that's the gift that y'all have given me. All of me finally showed up in this skin at the same time, okay? That's a real gift. The, the God that I found, uh, of my understanding, that I got from Unbelievable You in, this, in the walls of Al-Anon, um, the God I brought into these rooms would be, oh, say a, a referee at a sporting event, Okay. I'd be going along doing life, and a whistle would blow, and bam, I'd get punished some way. That's the God I brought into you. Now, that was not a good, friendly God. That was not a God on my side. So by hanging out with you and working these steps, I found the God that's outlined in our steps and in our tradition. We start off with um, a power greater than ourselves. Then we start off with a God of our understanding. We keep talking about the God of our understanding. And then in the second tradition... We put an adjective in front of that God, and it says loving, loving God. That's the God I found in the rooms of Al-Anon, and that's the kind of God I needed to take me through that dark cave of steps four and five, okay? I needed a God that was on my side that I could hold hands with when I looked and, uh, at myself in steps four and five. And this God is also gentle, kind, loving, but also bigger than the monsters under the bed, I mean, that's the God that's on my side. That's the God that you gave to me. And um, the you that you gave to me, the you of my understanding, let me tell you, the you of the world, before I got into Al-Anon, I put you in two categories. If you were female, you were always after my man. And if you were a man, you were always after me. And that's the way I divided the whole world until I got into Al-Anon. And I want to tell you, through working these steps, who you are. You're incredible. If you look at these steps, the first word is the word we, and the number by that is number one. It looks like we're in first place, folks, you know. They say hang out with the winners. I say you are. On a Friday night, you are in a seat at an Al-Anon convention. You're participating in your own life. That's pretty incredible that you are the winners. Uh, I was taught to stick with the winners. In fact, I was taught when things were going really rough to get right in the middle of the winners. You know, like the penguins? Do y'all talk about the penguin story up here? You know, a little penguin is sick, and if it falls over, it can't get back up. So when a penguin is sick, all of the other penguins move in really close. So if the penguin weaves or moves around, they will hold it upright until it's well. So on days that I'm desperate, I sit right, stand right in the middle of the penguins, and you are my penguins to hold me up. That's who you are. That's the people of my understanding. And what I know about us are the other words that come out of these incredible steps, and probably my favorite one is the word restore. You know, nothing gets restored unless it has worth and value. 
okay? You think about a piece of antique furniture. You may have to use some pretty harsh chemicals. You may have to scrub it. You may have to do a lot of work to finally restore it to its natural beauty that it once was. But you don't put in that much effort unless it was something of worth and value before you started on it. Or uh, like Martha said, I just got incredible uh, traveling in Europe. And when you go to Europe, you go to a lot of museums and you see a lot of paintings, okay? You see lots of paintings. And, um, and after a while, you find one that they're trying to restore. And you know how they restore it? With a tiny little brush. I mean, these paintings are huge. And they restore it with a tiny, tiny little brush. And it takes a long time. And they have to be very gentle. But they don't restore it unless it had worth and value. So that's who we are. We're worthy of restoration. We have worth and value. And I didn't know that. In our ODAP book, it says we have a birthright to a life of dignity. I had to read that at 40 years old in an Al-Anon book to know that I had a birthright to a life of dignity. I did not know that. Um, when I went through the steps four and five, I, I, I did. I was a, I was, I was a feisty girl. Okay, I got married young, and then I got a divorce, and I made up for lost time, and then I got married again, and then I made up for lost time, and my sponsor did not doze off during my fifth step. Okay, <laughs> I, I was a feisty girl out there, and what I know about that is. That's not who I am, because if that's who I was, those actions wouldn't have bothered me, and I'd still be out there doing them. I do not do those survivor things anymore. And what I know about my biggest reality as far as going through steps four and five is, and, and I think our, our, um, our fellowship has recognized it, is what I know that I had a lot of grieving to do. Because when you lose something, and what all the things that we lost to the disease. My parents not being available. I wasn't available to my children growing up. Uh, Mainly the loss of the dreams. I really believed that first husband and I were going to live happily ever after, okay? Mainly I had to grieve the loss of the dreams. And that was, when I first went through the steps, that's what I got in touch with. And evidently our fellowship is in touch with that because we have this incredible new book that's come out about grieving And the person that I bought it from had already been reading on it. And I said, now, this isn't about whining, is it? And she says, no, no, it's about hope. So our new book about grieving is not about whining. I have a friend that says her job is to stomp out global whining, okay? (laughs) And she carries a clown nose in her car, a big red one. And when she's getting too tense and, you know, rather than, you know, uh, road rage, she has road humor. She puts on this clown nose and just drives around with it. I mean, you know, how great is that? You know, she's been restored to humor. You know, that, that's what happens to us from, from hanging out. So I know that I had a lot of grieving to, to do. And grieving is a process, okay? I can grieve the loss of the dreams, and then I can move on. And, and I have moved on. I, uh, I lived single for a while, um, kind of a long time for me. I really never planned on being married again. And then I met this incredible man um, in recovery. My sponsor had me go to uh, open AA meetings in early Al-Anon, never to share because I'm in an AA meeting. I do not share as an Al-Anon in an AA meeting. It's not my meeting. But she had me go there to hear the stories of hope and to hear the experience around the disease of alcoholism. So I had met this man. 
And I thought he must be the happiest man in a marriage. I just thought he was the cutest thing. And he sat on the other side of the room, and um, I couldn't believe it. And then one day my um, friend said, did you know that Scott's divorce is going to be final in a few weeks? I said, Scott's divorce? What are you talking about? I didn't know he'd had any trouble. And she said, where have you been? He hasn't even lived in his household for two years. And I thought, that was information God didn't want me to have until right now, you know. (laughs) I said I'd been, I was being a good girl. I didn't say I was perfect, you know. <laughs> and so here is this unbelievable man that um, that that asked me out, and uh, and we 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 dated, we courted, and um, and we and you know you know what a date looks like in, in AA and Al-Anon. We'd go for coffee and then go to a meeting and go to a meeting and then go for coffee. I mean that's what it looked like, and it was wonderful. We got in a committed relationship, and then he asked me to marry him, and we're coming up on 13 years of marriage. And I have to tell you, yes, this is my, my now and forever wonderful husband, Scott, yes. And, and I want to tell you what that looks like of two programs. I mean, two programs in the same household, that could get interesting. So what we did, we came up with some understandings. Um, we have an AA telephone line that comes in. We have an Al-Anon telephone line that comes into our house, okay? That helps a lot. Um, in this marriage, we have what we call a shared vision. We have a shared vision whether or not it's that we're going to have go out to eat or have cereal at home, okay, tonight. That's our shared vision. We have a shared vision on where we want to do our retirement. We have a shared vision on what movie we want to go to on date night. We have a shared vision. But we are like the railroad ties. We're the rails. We have parallel lives. And it looks like they touch. You know, out in West Texas when it was really flat and you stood on that railroad track, it looks like those two rails really touched. But it's an illusion. You go on down the track and they really never touch. They, I am no longer one body with two heads on it. I'm not Velcro to this man. I'm a, a rail that has a parallel life. And the railroad ties are the things we have in common. Our unbelievable family, our recovery. Um, we have an agreement that always God will be first. Our recovery will be second. Because if either one of us don't have our recovery, we don't have anything to offer each other. And that we will be at least third in each other's lives. And sometimes he's got a big business deal going on right now. I tell you what, I don't think I'm even on the radar. Okay? But that's okay. I can hold the space for him until he gets through this big business deal. Um, Six years ago, my daughter was pregnant with twins. And she and her husband had to move into our household for four months because she was on bed rest. And as a family, we decided to, that this is the best way we could get these unbelievable babies into the world and take care of her. So they moved into our bedroom, and we moved into the guest room, and, um, and we took care of her for four months. I often say I knew I was in an Al-Anon slip the day I realized I was shaving her legs more often than my own. <laughs> but uh, women's conferences usually like that story better than the men, but, but that was the truth, you know. Um, and so, so we have agreements about what our household is supposed to look like in recovery. I want to go back the other two questions that my husband and I can ask each other on any given day, and they, we will not get mad at each other. This is by agreement ahead of time because we don't want to work each other's program. By agreement, we can say, how long has it been since you've been to a meeting? That's a good question because if, if my meeting count gets down, I get a spiritual flat tire. And now I'm not a happy person. I just 
do a, a low grade of brightness, okay? So at any given time, my husband can say, how long, is this, how long has it been since you've been to a meeting? And I'll know that I need to get myself to a meeting. The second thing that we can say to each other is, would you be willing to talk to your sponsor about that, okay? And that means we both have sponsors. And those are the only two questions that we can work as far as each other's program are concerned. And that keeps for an interesting, fun-loving household in recovery. Now, this, I want to tell you a little bit about this daughter um, that was beginning her journey, the, the mother of these twin grandsons. The, she was beginning her, dr- her journey into drugs and alcohol when I first got into Al-Anon, or really kind of full, full steam ahead. And I couldn't understand why she, she didn't stop drinking. She'd seen what it had done to our family. And uh, then that light bulb came on. Oh, I get it. And so what I want to share with you is this August, she shared 18 years in AA. You know, I, yes. And you know what that is? What time is it? Okay. Uh, what, um, what that says to me is that AA parented her so great. And what that says to me, that, and her husband's sober 14 years, what that says to me is they have a marriage, they have a relationship in recovery, and my grandsons are being raised differently than what I was raised. Maybe not perfect. You know, we still have the the disease of alcoholism floating around. My young daughter was in Alateen forever, and then she uh, did some Alateen coordinator work, but she didn't really transition into Al-Anon. She's now 32, and what she says, oh, Mama, every time the family gets together, a meeting breaks out. (laughs) Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? So this is what I have. I have a God of my understanding, a loving God. Thank you, Al-Anon. I have a me of my understanding. I can tell you what colors I like, and I can tell you what I like to eat, and I will use pronouns I and me. Thank you, Al-Anon. I can tell you who you are. You're the winners. You're worthy of restoration because you're sitting here at a conference. And all of this I got as a result of working these steps. Um, My spiritual awakening that I have when I got to the 12th step would have to be that I have choices. Did I not know that I had choices? No. I just thought I had assignments. I just thought I had conditions. I just thought I had purpose and direction and drive. I did not know that I had choices to say yes and choices to say no. Uh, Now I can have choices. Call my sponsor? Hmm, don't call my sponsor. Hide out under the covers? Go to a meeting. I mean, I've got choices in my life that I never knew I had. I also know that my disease is one of amnesia. I forget who you are. I forget what you've taught me. So to help myself remember, I use this little story. Long, long ago, there was this village, and there was a wise, wise old man. And um, there was a young boy, and he was jealous of the old man, and uh, he wanted to trip the old man up. And so this young boy had a scheme. It was a perfect scheme. The young boy's plan was he was going to catch a baby bird, and he was going to go to the old man, and he was going to put the bird behind his back. And he was going to ask the old man if the bird was dead or alive. And if the old man said, well, son, that bird is alive. Well, the boy was going to crush the baby bird and kill it and then show the old man the dead bird. Or if the old man said, well, son, that bird's dead. Well, then the young boy was just going to show him the live bird. 
I mean, is this not an incredible plan that this young boy has? So he called all the village together. He said, okay, oh man, I've got this baby bird here. I've got it behind my back, and you tell me whether or not this bird is dead or alive. And without hesitation, the old man said, son, the choice is yours. Okay? So when I'm at that threshold of wondering if I'm supposed to go to a meeting, if I'm supposed to read my literature, I've got, I've got those choices. And, you know, we've got choices. We're not going to get kicked out if we, because we get happy. We're not going to get kicked out because we start laughing. This is what I believe with all my heart, is that there is absolutely no limit to how happy God wants you to be. Thank you for letting me share my story, and let's have a great weekend. Okay? <laughs>